This is Ben Smith, I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. This week on A Small Voice, Stuart Friedman. Stuart, uh, yet another Londoner. It's not uh, conversations with Londoners, but it might seem that way at the moment. Uh, it's just a coincidence, trust me. Uh, Stuart uh, has been a photographer since 1991, uh, a jobbing um, documentary and re- reportage photographer, I suppose you would say. Um, his work has been published um, all over the place in, in magazines such as Life and Geo and Time, The Spiegel, Newsweek. And um, he has covered stories all over the world from Albania to Afghanistan and from the former Yugoslavia to Haiti and uh, uh, also uh, numerous uh, African nations, uh, including Sierra Leone. His work's been recognized in many awards from organizations such as Amnesty International and Pictures of the Year, uh, the Royal Photographic Society and UNICEF. And in 1998, he was selected for the World Press Masterclass the following year for the Agfa Young Photojournalist of the Year. Uh, his work's been exhibited widely. He's had solo shows uh, in Perpignan and the Scoop Festival in Anjou uh, and the Leica Gallery in Germany and uh, various other museums and galleries. And his work on HIV and AIDS in Rwanda and from post-conflict south of Lebanon has toured extensively internationally also. He continues to photograph and also to write for a variety of editorial and commercial clients and is a member of Panels Pictures in London. And his first book, The Palaces of Memory, about the coffee houses of India, has just been published by Dowie Lewis. Um, he describes it, I think, in the interview as a love letter to India. It's a beautiful book. Uh, have a look at it. In the meantime, here's Stuart. Hi Stuart. Hey, how are you doing? Good, nice to see you. Thank you very much for talking to me. My pleasure. I guess the obvious place to start is at the beginning for you, so um, perhaps you could tell me how you got interested in photography to start with. Well, um, I went to university and did a politics and modern history degree, and halfway through that um, I discovered a magazine called Photography, which was edited by a chap called Nigel Skelsey, who was then the Telegraph picture editor, and Victoria Lukens, who I'd go on to work for years later at the Independent on Sunday magazine. And the magazine was kind of interesting. It wasn't really like any other kind of photography magazine that I'd ever seen, not that I'd seen many of them. Um, but it showcased serious work. It was beautiful quality. It showcased serious work over many pages. And it kind of opened my eyes. And I thought, I really want to do this. And I thought, and when you're young, you, you think you can do anything. And maybe that's not a bad thing to think. And I thought, I really want to do this. I was searching for something. And uh, I guess I thought I could be a photojournalist. Um, I wanted to ditch my politics degree at the time, I remember. And um, I went down to see a chap called Mark Power, who's now at Magnum. Um, and uh, I showed him my appalling photo portfolio. And he said, whatever you do, don't stop your degree. <laughs> And uh, it was probably good advice, actually. And, um, yeah, and, and, but it was, I think it was that magazine, actually, that um, really sparked an interest. And, and more so that it sparked an interest in that what photography could do. I wasn't interested in beautiful pictures so much, but I was interested in the stories that photography could tell. Mm. That's what really sparked an interest. So your, your, your kind of initial... Um uh, interest was immediately in in documentary and reportage. Yeah, absolutely. Photojournalism. Yeah, absolutely. So and so, what? It's great that you just kind of made that decision, and then, what? How did you set about? Uh, I mean, obviously, you had no uh, um, had no knowledge of, uh, as to whether you were going to be any good. Any good? So, clearly, yeah. clearly, I wasn't. <laughs> clearly, I wasn't at the time. But and, no one and is maybe to I'm start not anymore. With. You know. But uh, well, you know what I. I wangled a job on the student magazine um, taking pictures and I was appalling. But um, I guess I kept at it and finished the degree, came down to London and just shot anything I could. Uh, Took a job for a few months filing to buy some cameras and 
I think pretty pretty soon after I started doing the odd shift on a Sunday for the Times, just by sheer persistence of going in and saying, "Do you want this? Do you want that?" And I, I had no idea at that time how you got into the business. There wasn't. I guess then there wasn't the internet. There wasn't a network of people you could ask. It seemed very, very far off, and it was very much trial and error. And, um, well, I guess I'm kind of headstrong, and I just kept doing it and putting myself in situations where I could make interesting pictures. Hmm. I guess that's how it started, really. Hmm. I didn't really want to do anything else. I didn't know what I wanted to do. But I'd been quite politically active up to that point, and I, well, I'm a little bit embarrassed to say it. Well, maybe I'm not so embarrassed. I wanted to change the world. Mm. I, I, you know, and I don't think, um, I don't think that's a bad ambition for someone that's, uh, you know, 19, 20. I think it's a good ambition. And um, I'm not sure photography can change the world. I'm not sure that I've affected any change at all, but it was something I really wanted to have a go at. Mm. Um, yeah. So what was it that you felt that, that photography could do then? I liked photographers' immediacy. I liked the idea that it could tell stories. Um, and just the fact that you could put your image on everybody's breakfast table. There was something about it that I thought was it was... Actually, the truth is that I kind of wanted to write as well. But to be honest with you, people from Hackney didn't end up as writers, okay? So I thought maybe photography might be a simpler way of becoming a journalist. Right. Didn't seem likely that a, a boy from Hackney could uh, could be a writer, but photography seemed reasonably accessible. Well, I guess, you know, <clears throat> uh, during the 60s, that kind of working-class revolution of Terence Donovan and David Bailey and Don McCullen had kind of paved the way. And although there were angry young men as writers and... I was an angry young man. Maybe I'm still an angry older man. Um, but, and maybe Harold Pinter as well. He was from Hackney, I guess. Mm. But I didn't know how to write. And it seemed like an even more difficult club to break into. Yeah. Um, with a camera, you know, as a photographer, you, you get on a plane with a camera and good intentions and you could do something. And it felt like I really wanted to show the world to the world, if that doesn't sound ridiculously mm. pretentious. I guess that does sound ridiculously pretentious, well, but, you I think, know. I think it's allowable for a 20-year-old. Yeah. yeah. So how long did it take before you kind of started to feel confident or capable? I don't really think I still feel capable <laughs> or confident, to be honest with you. You feel like you're, you still feel like you're faking it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I still wake up and think, oh, really? Am I doing that? Mm. Um, I think that's a nice thing for people to hear because I think we all have that kind of imposter syndrome thing going on mm. that we, you know, there is that sort of uh, insecurity at the heart of yeah. a lot of creative people. I mean, I, I'm always telling people not to rush off to the nearest conflict, but. You know, I went to Croatia in 91 and I, I couldn't use a camera. I made some great pictures, but more by luck than judgment. Mm. And uh, I really didn't know what I was doing. Mm. But it was a learning curve. Was that your first experience of conflict? Mm. Yeah. Well, I'd been to Northern Ireland. Um, yeah, I'd been... To, well, actually, I'd been to Northern Ireland and Albania, I think. Mm. Um, but of people actually shooting at me, yeah, that was... Uh, that was, I think that was the first, yeah. Mm. And I didn't know what I was doing. No. But you had enough sort of uh, get up and go to just do it anyway. I guess that t it takes a certain amount of confidence to do that. Well, I suppose. Um, I never really thought of myself as a particularly confident person, but photography has allowed me to actually become more confident because you have to... And I guess that's the thing that doesn't get any easier. You have to be open and you have to talk to strangers. Mm. There's there's no way around it, you know. Um, some situations require you to dominate a situation. Some situations require you to shut up and, and fade into the background. And um, I think I learned really on my feet very quickly. Mm. Um, and it's still difficult, you know, if you're working on the streets, approaching someone and taking a complete stranger's picture in a different culture is, well, not only is it beset by kind of, you know, ethical and 
operational difficulties, but, but there's that whole thing about how you relate to other people. Um, but I guess I just did it. Mm. I guess I just did it. And it was a way for me to, it was a way for me to escape the damp, you know, gray tower block that I grew up in. Um, and I never, you know, I never really looked back to be honest. Mm. What uh, I guess, what were the first lessons you learned from from that initial experience of of conflict in the Balkans? Don't go and cover a war when you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, to be perfectly honest with you, um, you felt like uh, perhaps uh, you'd been a little naive or something. Yeah, I, I I did, but there was. I mean, clearly, it felt like I was where things were happening and for me at that time and I don't think it's I don't think it's no longer true I, I don't feel that way about things but it felt important to be there mm. um, and see what was going on in front of me um, and it was an important lesson on so many levels I came back and uh, the guy that I'd been working and staying with a guy called Paul Jenks was murdered and uh, you know that really threw me I can imagine. Yeah, it really threw me. This um, was a, a friend of yours? Also. Yeah, Paul was a contact that I, I made through other friends and we'd lived together uh, for a few weeks and uh, I came back and he was shot in, I think it was an Ossiek. John Sweeney did a documentary about him. Mm, I remember um, that, actually. Yeah, now yeah. you've mentioned it. Yeah. But he was a journalist himself. Or he what? was, but he was taking pictures and he was a good yeah. photographer. I think he was a better writer and he would admit that. Mm. And he was very brave. Um, he, t- he was, and he was also very generous. And he took me into situations that were incredibly dangerous, but kept an eye. Mm. And um, I must have been a real nuisance because I, you know, I'm an, an, a liability. Mm. But I think you learn pretty quickly uh, when, you know, when you're under that kind of pressure. Um, yeah, but I wouldn't want to, in any sense, call myself a conflict photographer because I don't think I am. No, well, I was going to say you've done a you've done a very kind of wide breadth of of mm. things, but that's certainly one of the things you've done in the past. You you also ended up, I think you went to Afghanistan quite early on, didn't you? Yeah, I did the siege of Kabul uh, for a German magazine uh, for Spiegel, um, and that was that was also pretty unpleasant. Um, but yeah, that was a story that no one was really talking about. Uh, it was Hekmatyar and Dostum fighting over the city. And, uh, yeah, I went out there through Pakistan, um, yeah, for a couple of weeks, I think, two, three weeks. Yeah. And what, were you getting commissioned or were you just t- taking yourself off? No, on that spec? was a commission, yeah, that was okay. a commission. Yeah. Um, sometimes a commission, sometimes a guarantee, which doesn't exist anymore. You know, magazines would say, well, here's a £1,000, go off, we get first rights, we, you know, you send us the stuff first and we'll run it. And it enabled me to go around the world and just, you know, do stuff. Um, other times people would say, yeah, you can give you a week or we can give you 10 days or we can give you two days. Um, and if you bolted enough together, you could you could do a trip. Right. You could you could make it financially yeah, exactly. viable to go. Exactly, yeah. yeah. The other place you went to was Sierra Leone. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a... A difficult story yeah, to have well, to... Well, yeah, I mean, I'd worked in, I've worked in Sierra Leone um, three, four times. Uh, the first time I went was was 97, um, and it was at the start of a project I wanted to do about young men and violence called The Lord of the Flies. And I eventually ended up doing Sierra Leone, Liberia, Rwanda, Uganda and Angola, looking at the ramifications of a whole generation of young men that had been forced to do terrible things. Um, and it, it it's kind of struck me that these young men were, well, there but for the grace of God, it could have been me, you know? And I'm not suggesting for a second that growing up in Hackney or Dalston or Freetown or Monrovia, you know, was the same kind of thing. But um, I think the same, some of the same issues, uh, you know, violence, there was you know, nothing to do. And I think that's, that's, a, that's a huge issue, no future. Um, but I'd read a, a piece in the Atlantic Monthly by a guy called Robert Kaplan, an American historian, journalist, uh, where he talked about loose molecules of young men that rape and loot with impunity. 
And this had a huge effect on American state, you know, American foreign policy and the State Department. And I just thought, this is nonsense. You know, um, this is a kind of neoliberal, Victorian view of, of the developing world. We don't understand it, so let's leave it. You know, and looking back now, we're, we're looking back through the prisons of the of the nine eleven wars, as Jason Burke would say, of this of this you know non-stop intervention. But then, in those days, there was a there was a different mindset. I mean, America had been in Somalia, but West Africa, Liberia, just seemed such a far away place, and and politically, people just didn't want to get involved. Mm. But it just seemed to me a really extraordinary story. The, the 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 Sierra Leoneans didn't know what to do with these kids. They had no. I mean, there was no functioning, uh, you know, real functioning uh, psychiatric centres. Mm. And these 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 kids that had been demobbed from various militias uh, were roaming the streets, mm. um, or were chained up to trees and stuff. And um, and and I mean, just to sort of clarify the context they're basically kids who'd, who'd been kind of forced into doing uh horrific uh yeah things yeah. and were tra- traumatized essentially and were traumatized i mean in in gulu in northern uganda i mean kitgum as well the lord's resistance army which uh you know led by joseph coney who's still at large um you know kids were forced to do appalling things and murder rape their parents uh, it was just just extraordinary and it it was such a kind of disgusting scenario and the world wasn't looking you know and I also think visually it didn't really lend itself to storytelling it was a, it was a written story as much as anything and I I wanted to make pictures that kind of reflected or tried to reflect a little bit more subtlety um, mm. you know to say this could be your kid I know that sounds really corny but actually and I've said this before there, but for the grace of God, it could have been me. How would you, you know, if someone put a gun in your hands and said, well, if you don't shoot your mum, mm. uh, we're going to shoot you and we're going to shoot her anyway. What, you know, what are you going to do? Mm. And it goes back to a lot of this stuff about the other, you know, which Richard Kapuscinski writes eloquently about, uh, Richard Kapuscinski, you know, the Polish journalist, about the other and how we see the other. Uh, and it was my contention that these young men were sinned against a sinning. Mm. So, and it was a difficult project. Huh? It was a difficult few years shooting it and constantly going back into it. Um, and yeah. I mean, uh, you're talking about uh, essentially the fact that that what one of the problems with photography is that you know that you need something to shoot, and it was mm. really a story about the aftermath of of something. Yeah, and so well, aftermath, but also, <clears throat> I mean, these things. You know, the kids were. Still, um, how can I say, they were still doing what they were doing. And there was an ongoing war in Gula at that time. I went to Angola too. You know, there was still a bit of uh, a bit of trouble in Angola. And as in 97, there was a coup, which I was, which I was in. You know, I got caught in the coup. Um, so, I mean, it, it wasn't that the story had gone and it was an aftermath story, but it was kind of... I guess I guess the difficulty in photographing it was trying to photo. I mean, the, the, the subtitle was the mental landscape of war, and I shot it in black and white because that's all I shot in those days. And looking about it, thinking about it now, you know, I, I look back on that work and think, well, I haven't shot black and white since two thousand and four, so I completely changed the way that I shot. Um, but I still think the work is strong. Hmm. I still think the work kind of does what it says on the tin. I think it's empathetic and I think it's pretty sensitive. And how how did you kind of deal with the psychological impact of having to deal with um, you know that kind of having to work on that kind of story? Did you find yourself changed, or did you have to kind of have strategies for? for well, I, I don't know. I mean, being caught up in the coup was was not a barrel of laughs, and it's the only place I've lost kit. Uh, it was it was a bit it was a bit nasty, um, and I suppose that that was a bit of a. Yeah, I had a few sleepless nights when I got back. But, you know, I went straight back to Liberia. I went straight back to Monrovia. And I think when you're a bit younger, you're a bit invincible. And I think that's not a bad thing. Um, And also, to be perfectly honest with you, you know, I could leave. Well, I nearly couldn't leave. But, um, you know, generally speaking, you, you go into a story and you can leave. 
it's the people that are still there that have the trauma. So I'm slightly wary of talking about all oh, journalists having trauma. And do you know what I mean? Because sure, I, yeah. I think it kind of detracts from. Of course, absolutely. And and you know, you're not you're not the story. And and uh, yeah. I wouldn't for a moment try and um, you know make a comparison between the impact sure, sure. that it has on the photographer and the impact mm-hmm. it's having on the people actually yeah. affected. But at the same time, I think you know, obviously some people are suited to doing that kind of work yeah. and that's why they end up doing it. I th- Well, I think, you know, photography, especially photojournalism, attracts a lot of uh, really damaged people. That's the truth of it. Huh? I think that's true. Um, and uh, I guess to, to some extent, you know, I put myself in that category, but I don't do that work anymore. Mm. Yeah, for, a very, for a very serious reason, because, uh, you know, I've come very close on, on numerous occasions and you know i can't run that fast anymore mm. and yeah. so yeah and i'm not i'm not 24 it strikes you know. me as a kind of a young man's game to some extent yeah i mean but also i think i want to tell different stories i think you can really fall into this kind of clichéd particularly male thing about conflict and uh you know and, and and to be honest with you i was never really that the lord of the flies marked a bit of a turning point in that you know People have gone to Africa, people have shot stories about child soldiers. This was an attempt to be a little bit more um, subtle, I guess, and tell a story in a slightly different way. And maybe even though I shot it in black and white in quite a traditional style, um, I felt that it marked a bit of a change to some of the work that I'd done before. It was really the first story that I felt Really, I wanted to tell and I wanted to do it my way. And um, I think it worked. Mm. And it taught me a lesson. It taught me that I didn't necessarily have to follow the diktats of magazines and, you know, commissioners, that I could go and shoot what I wanted, how I wanted, and it would work. And I think we talked about confidence earlier. And I think I was very much a kind of assignment photographer before that. You know, the phone would ring. I okay, I'll get on a plane, I'll go here, or I'll go and shoot, you know, a businessman for a corporate report, or I'll go and shoot, uh, you know, something for a Sunday newspaper, whatever. Uh, well, I didn't really work for newspapers, actually, to be honest. I, you know, maybe if, if Spiegel said, can you go and do the Labour Party conference? I'd go and do that. I'd just do it, I'd just do it, I'd just do it. And it was it was fine, and I learned quite a lot. I learned, I, I hate to say it, I learned my craft. But you know, you do, you learn you learn the business and you learn how to shoot. But Lord of the Flies marked a bit of a turning point. It marked a, a start of something that made me think, huh, oh, there's something about me that had gotten lost maybe in the first few years of my career when I was just doing what other people asked me to do. Hmm. Does that does that make sense? Yeah. And I'm what you know, did you learn were you kind of learning stuff about yourself at that point while you were doing those yeah. kind of Yeah, you learn about yourself and you learn about your place in the world and how you learn about how you see yourself, but more importantly, you develop a bit more of a world picture. Mm. And um, I don't think I'd worked in Africa up to that point. And, and and it was the start of a kind of relationship with Africa that lasted, well, the last time I was in Africa was last year, but yeah, it hasn't stopped. Right. You know. Um, and, you know, as you said, you, you started with an interest in politics, mm. essentially. So uh, That underlines everything, yeah. that underpins everything. Yeah. And was your plan was your plan always to to see the world as it were? Well, yeah, I, I thought about that. Yes, yes and no. I I wasn't really. Do you know? I think I'd been out of the country once um, before I before I decided I was going to be a, an international photographer. Um, I think I think I went on a school trip to France. That mm. was it. You know, I didn't know the first thing, but I kind of felt that there was a world out there, and photography might selfishly, you know, help me explore it. Yeah, it gives you an excuse. In it a gives way. you an excuse, and and I don't necessarily think there's anything wrong with that, as long as you're not, you know, doing terrible things with the work you're producing. Mm. I, I think that's okay. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, everyone has a, everyone has a, you know some some selfish motive. Absolutely, even if you're doing work that's essentially, Completely. you know, humanitarian um, or, or exactly. whatever. And you know, it'd be wrong of me to suggest otherwise. I mean, yeah, we all have a selfish motive somehow. Mm. Yeah. yeah. The other place that you're, you know, I guess mainly associated with is India. How, mm. how did your kind of relationship with India uh, start? When did you first go there? Um, mid-90s. Um, I 
did a little bit of travelling around and on the way picked up some assignments and hated the place. Absolutely hated it. I went to Delhi first and remember I'd been in horrible situations. I'd been in Afghanistan, I'd been in Pakistan, um, you know, Albania, wars in Eastern Europe. And I landed and I thought, geez, this is just awful. And it wasn't the poverty, it wasn't the... It wasn't the grimness of that. I could, it was just chaotic. Mm. And things were coming at me from all sides. And I I couldn't, I didn't really have a handle on it. I didn't really know what, you know. And also, it's one of those places that's so exoticized, if I can say that, you know. And you're supposed to think a certain in a certain way. It's almost a kind of fantasy somehow. Um and I, I hated it. I absolutely hated it. And I was there for a, a while, maybe maybe four months, five months, shooting, doing a bit of travelling. You know, it was the first time I'd had a break. Um, I did some interesting assignments. Uh, but, yeah, just left and didn't want to go back. And then... So did you, I mean, in that period of months, did you did things improve at all? Or did you feel no, just I was as bad? No, or- I, was, I was grumpy from start to finish. I just didn't like it. Well, yeah. I had the exact same experience yeah. of India at the exact same time. Mm. And it is, you know, I think it's a place that a lot of people, you know, have uh, kind of struggle with. It, yeah. It's very full on. And, uh, yeah. And I wasn't expecting it. Yeah. yeah. And obviously as a, as a, as a, as a Westerner, you do get a lot of um, attention yeah. on a constant basis. Mm. Um, but I'm wondering, how, so when did that relationship change then? Cause you seem so the place you have an affection for now. Yeah, um, I do have an affection for it. I mean, I think, you know, um, it's still a bit of a love-hate thing. Mm. But I, I took an assignment for the Indie on Sunday mag, uh, India's 50th anniversary, which would have been 96. Uh, was it 47? So it had been 97. Okay. 96, no, I can't remember. Um, and I pitched to do a story about profiling, I think, a dozen people that were born in 90... Yeah, it's 47. Uh and they said, yeah, sure, if you go. And um, so I I did brief interviews with, I think, a dozen people all over the country and photographed them. And maybe on that trip, something made me go, okay, there's other things here. Because I think you need to dig a little deeper in, in different cultures. And, and when you do, you're always rewarded with something extraordinary. Um, f- for me... Going back, I, I I don't want to bang on about the Indian Coffee House, but the Indian Coffee House that I discovered on my first trip in New Delhi became a real way into India. Uh, you know, these pla- this place that uh, perched atop a 1960s brutalist shopping centre was a bit of a refuge. And uh, I didn't photograph it, I just sat there. It was <laughs> No one was staring at yeah, me. Yeah, it's a kind of sanctuary from yeah, the craziness. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And then when I went back to do this... Uh, you know, uh, 50 years from independence, um, I kind of went around the country and found different Indian coffee houses and sat in them and wasn't stared at, you know? Yeah. And they reminded me very much of the places that I'd, you know, the calves, the greasy spoon calves that I'd gone in as a young man in Dalston, where you could have these conversations about politics and poetry and art and football, you know, and it made me think, okay, there's a similarity here. The developing world, the other, is not so different. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'd known that all along, but I hadn't really felt it. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. You just need something to guide you through, something familiar yet something unfamiliar. Exactly. And and it was just, it happened to be these coffee houses. So, yeah. yeah. And that, of course, is now um, you're going to turn that project into a, a book which is kind yeah. of um happening right as we speak as yep. it were it's published uh september 24th right yeah and so uh, so you essentially been been shooting that project for what 20 years on and off no no um i i pitched the story to a german magazine in 2010 i think it was because the Indian Coffee House in New Delhi was under threat of closure. Mm. And I thought, okay, that's really interesting. And then suddenly, in the Indian media, uh, Indian journalists rediscovered it. 
And every time I went there, a film crews and journalists interviewed old men. And I was like, well, hang on, it's, it's just a cafe, isn't it? You know, I knew it was, I knew it was something a little bit more than that. But I just thought, well, it's not that special. And then I found out about the history of it and how integral it was to post-independence in, and in fact pre-independence India in slightly different forms. Uh, how culturally significant, how politically significant, how how much of Delhi had been formed around it. In, 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 I mean, in various incarnations, because there have been several Indian coffee houses in Delhi. How important it was. And like some, you know, damp-eyed old uh, Indian politician, I was like, oh, this can't shut. This is really important. And I, I photographed just that. And then I made it my business to get a travel assignment in the next year or so in Jaipur. And I photographed the one in Jaipur as part of a different travel piece. And I came back and thought, you know what? There's something really in this. There's something in this that nobody's seen or if they've seen, they've forgotten it. Hmm. Uh, and yeah, so I guess it all told, it took me, apart from those first two 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 gigs, and I reshot the Jaipur Coffee House, maybe two, three years right. to do it. And I shot 30 all over the country. Right, Okay. So it's something you'd sort of, in a way, you'd rediscovered it yourself because it was yeah. you'd, you'd been aware of it, but not as a project. You'd been aware of it just as a... Absolutely. It was <laughs> just somewhere to go and say hello to people and, you know, you'd say hello to the old guys and they'd be, oh, what have you been up to? and Or you just sit there and watch the monkeys clamber over the rooftops. It was beautiful, yeah. you know, and, and it really looked like, you know, 1960s, 1970s Hackney. It just looked that way, mm. except with a lot more sun, mm. you know. Um, but, yeah, I, I've done 30 of them and written about them and Amit Chowdhury, the, uh, the, the Indian author, very kindly wrote a piece about, uh, well, not really about the coffee houses, but about age and pattern and maybe a legacy of, of memory. Right. So, uh, That's yeah. That's nice. And, you know, and we, we photograph India either in, in terms of poverty or exotica. And over the years, I've been trying not to do that because you know, you either have the very cliched, you know, everybody goes and shoots a brothel or everybody goes and shoots the homeless or everybody goes and shoots the new wealth. And actually India's a damn sight more than that. And India's completely, you know, there's so many countries in India. Each coffee house looks different. And I just wanted a way in, in the way that Rakibua Singh, you know, a way into India, his book with the ambassador car that he shot through an ambassador car in different cities. I wanted to find a way in that was... Uh, different, but also on an equal footing. I didn't want to be seen as this kind of, you know, post-colonial British photographer looking at beautiful Raj memories. That's not what this book is about at all. Right. And it's really important, huh? Yeah. Because the people in the coffee house are the same as the people I grew up with. Hmm. They just happen to have different colour skin. Yeah. That's it. And did you um, make decisions to, from the from the outset about how you wanted to shoot it, how you wanted... To- to make it look, whether you wanted them all to, you know, to have some consistency from one to another, or did you kind to of... To an extent, by... but most of the pictures are really about people. So I just went and sat down and started chatting to people. Mm. And um, that's what I do. There's no, you know, I'm not an architectural photographer. I could have gone down that route, I suppose. But I wouldn't know how to do that. Technically, I'm useless. So, you know, I'd just rock up and say, hello, how are you doing? Do you fancy coffee? And I'm going to take some pictures. Is that all right? And people would say, yeah. I mean, I always ask the manager first. And he's like, yeah, sure, go ahead. Um, I never got a no. Hmm. I don't think I got a single no. Yeah. It, I mean, it's just what I do. Just walk around and say, I say hi and smile a lot and take some pictures. It's not, ro- that, it's not rocket science. Eh? It's it goes just, a long way, just that simple. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. A bit of smiling and Absolutely. friendliness. And yeah. So then when did it sort of form in your head as, as a potential book project or was that from the start? Uh, I think pretty much from the start, I thought there's a book here. Because mm. um, you hadn't done one until... I hadn't and it was a huge regret. It was bodies of work that I'd shot um, that I thought should have been books. Uh, people either didn't get or thought were too grim or too graphic or too miserable, um, too bloody. <laughs> and, yeah, I was a bit disillusioned with it, to be honest. Um, but this seemed like 
you know, we have a few good ideas in our life and this was one of them. Yeah. Uh, it was a very, it's a very simple idea and, um, you know, nobody died in the making of this book. It's yeah. nobody, you know, nobody was shot. It's no. great. <laughs> there's not a lot of, there's no blood in it. There's, there's no blood in it, no. No suffering. Some, some ketchup, from... but no mm. blood. Yeah. So, um, in terms of how it all panned out, um, is Darry Lewis is going to um, be be uh, publishing it? That's but right. But you you raised money through Kickstarter. I did. I did. So I mean, th- this is g- this is going to be one of those things that I think is going to come up a lot um, and has already come up to some extent mm. on the, the people I've spoken to up to now. But um, I'm just interested in your kind of perspective on all that. Um, if you if you did a Kickstarter campaign, you could have just just gone the self-publishing route but you what, I could have what, done yeah. what made you how did it well because it because Dowie said he wanted to do it um so you went uh, to him and showed him the work I yeah think. yeah um I mean I showed other people and they wanted to do it too but Dowie's an honorable bloke and he does great books yeah he's hugely respected yeah exactly and I just thought well you know there's no there's no there's no quibble yeah we'll do it you know but publishing has changed and Profit margins in publishing are tiny. I mean, I just thought, well, I really want to do this. I had to find, and I was absolutely petrified. Well, that was going to be my question was, you know, did you have your doubts as to whether you were going to actually? Really, I just thought, God, no one's going to go for this. Um, And you have to turn yourself into a bit of a brand, which is a kind of dread for me. I, you know, I'm a very old fashioned sort of photographer and, and feel very, like I don't really want to be in the picture and through things like Kickstarter, but increasingly with social media, which I had to utilise, you've, you've kind of got to be in the picture somehow. Hmm. People want to know how you do things. People want to see how you do things. People want to hear about the stories, when you produce the work, how you produce the work. They want to know about you. And I think that's, in a, in a funny kind of way, that's kind of the antithesis of how I've been a journalist over all these years. But... Well, needs must, and mm. uh, and it works pretty well. So you kind of have to go from being kind of self-effacing to actually, you know, the opposite of that. And a little bit, yeah, a little out. bit, yeah. And so, um, how how have you negotiated all that? You're not of that of the Facebook generation. I'm, I'm not of the Facebook generation. Although, you know, I've just had to work quite hard on Facebook and Twitter and say, well, this is what I'm doing. Here's some tear sheets. Here's what I think about this. Here's an update about the book and and it seems to have worked i think i think what's really refreshing is that people really like it's going to sound awful but people like honesty like you know people can smell bad intentions a mile off Mm. and my intention was to get this book published in the you know in the in the most honest way i could i've shared what it was like people can now see the book The, the book is going out people really seem to like it it was honest. The, the writing, the essay that I've written is about, you know, the similarity between my upbringing and what I found in Delhi. Um, yeah, I think one, if, if you know, people can see through brick walls. And it's like that if you're trying to photograph them. People can see through brick walls. If they think you've got a bad intention, they're probably going to tell you to go away. And you've just got to be honest and open. And I think, it, you know, I don't have the answers, but I think it works. Mm. And I think Kickstarter worked in the same way. The, the, the campaign was was great i i was really nervous i thought there might be you know some bad comments or why are you doing this or you know whatever but no it, it seems to strike a chord mm. yeah people seem to respond to your kind of authenticity mm. or as you say honesty however you want yeah. to say it sure and i guess the fact that you're also a writer has helped in a way because blogging and that kind of thing is something mm. that you're you know comes reasonably uh, easy to yeah you. i think um i've had a blog since 2009 it's called umbra summus mm. which um if you don't know cuz i didn't do latin at school strangely enough but it's the inscription above the uh the mosque in brick lane and my father's family uh were refugees they came over in the 1880s and, uh, you know, they settled in that area. Before them came the Huguenots. You know, just outside the city walls, the French Protestants. Then came the Jews. Then came the Bangladeshis. And the mosque was a synagogue. Before the synagogue, it was a church. So this Umbra Summus, we are shadows. We are but shadows. Uh, it's kind of an interesting motif for me personally. But it's got a nice photographic ring as well. Mm. And... Um, yeah, this whole idea of transience and 
fixing a shadow in a funny kind of sense is quite poetic. It's quite nice. Mm. So it has a dual meaning. So what are your hopes for the book? Um, obviously, apart from that, people will buy it. Um, is it, you know, is there is there any uh, any prospect of of income or is that just a, a bit of a pipe dream when I it comes think, to books? Yeah, I don't think really people make money from books. It's more something you do for for your own satisfaction. I was, yeah, I think I did it for love. I did it for love, mm. but I did. Mm. You know, um, specifically, I did it because I thought the coffee houses deserve to be remembered and honoured. Actually, and it's a love letter. It also is a love letter to maybe all the work I've tried to do in India over the last twenty years, almost, mm. because I think the country has given me a lot, and I, know, I don't want that to sound as schmaltzy as it sounds, but actually. India has taught me a hell of a lot about itself and myself, mm. how to operate, how to work, how to really like somewhere. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it's like that Kappa quote, you know? Um, it's not that if you're not close enough, you're not good enough or whatever. It was, it was something like, tell the, pe- you know, tell the people you shoot that you like them. I think that's really important. So this book is is really a bit of a love letter to the work that I've tried to do in India mm. since I first went there and hated it. <laughs> yeah. And did you actually live there full-time at some point? No, not full-time, but um, I lived there usually three, four months at a time. Right. So technically I'm still based between the two. Mm. I stay in a flat in the south of Delhi, uh, which, is, which is wonderful, um, and that's someone's extraordinary generosity. And um, I've been doing that for nearly 10 years, every year for nearly 10 years. Uh, an amazing opportunity. How about commercial work? Um, you are one of these people who kind of manages to straddle, you know, somehow the mm. space between um, different areas, uh, I guess different revenue streams, you could, you could say. I've, I've always done a bit, um, but I think that market has changed and I think that's not that my photography has changed so much, but what commercial clients want has changed. And I do a little bit, but nowhere near as, as much as I used to do. Um, and that's okay. You know, I still do the odd thing. Um, I still do the odd uh, commercial assignment and it's great when it comes because it tends to pay a heck of a lot more than well editorial simply doesn't pay Hmm. um but it's i'm not uh, i think you really have to be i think now it's really difficult not to be one thing or the other and i think that's about networks and about who you put your work in front of um i'd like to do more but you know there are there are there are only 24 hours in a day and Yeah. yeah so mainly it's editorial clients now I guess so, yeah. And 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 to be honest, is doing stuff that I really enjoy. Hmm. Um, and this project has been a, a prime example of that. But I do a bit of, I do a bit of teaching, I do a bit of mentoring. Um, Tell me about those two aspects of it then. Well, the teaching is is kind of visiting, lecturing, um, and also I run a course online, my photo school. Uh, I recorded four. Um, I think they're four 30 or 40 minute lectures about photojournalism and different aspects of photojournalism from the history of the medium right up to practice. Um, but I also mentor people hmm. um, and I've been doing so for a few years from, from people all over the world. Uh, yeah. So we sometimes do it on Skype if someone's in Australia. Hmm. Um, but generally speaking, people come to me, you know, if they're if they're stuck or they're just starting or if they're pretty well established and just don't know where to go, people, you know, I, I, I kind of, um, we sit down, we look at work, we talk about work, we try and identify ways to move forward. Mm. Um, and it's really enjoyable. Yeah. yeah. How, how did you come by that um, kind of decision to do that? Was it accidental or was it very um, kind of premeditated? Well, it, well it, was, it, was, it was a bit of both, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, Historically, if anybody had sent me an email or, or you know, a, a letter, do you remember those? Yeah, I do. If anyone had sent me a, a reasonable letter saying, you know, uh, would you look at my work? Um, I genuinely did. 
And, you know, I'd be quite happy to meet up because you really remember the people that helped you along the way yourself. And um, I just thought, okay, well, you know, I'm getting a lot of letters. Um, I'm getting a lot of emails. And, you know, perhaps I should think about doing this full time or professionally. Hmm. And it's an interesting, you know, photography now is is kind of a multi-track profession. Gone are the days where I can just survive on, you know, Stern phoning me up or Newsweek phoning me up. Um, yeah, you need you need, m- you need multiple revenue streams. Absolutely, and you have to... absolutely. So, I mean, I get, this is kind of a question which I think is interesting to ask just about everyone, which is um, how does the how does it break down? So, in other words, if, if you had a kind of pie chart of your total mm. income, what would be the biggest slice? You know, how would what would be the, the percentages? Ooh, I can't really do percentages, but... I guess still magazine work takes the bulk. Mm. Stock takes a bit of it. Right. The mentoring takes a bit of it. The teaching takes a bit of it. The writing takes a bit of it. I haven't really sat down and worked that out. But I think one has to be multi-headed. Yeah. You you have to do different things. And also, I would say that it's really boring if you do the same thing for 25 years. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It, it simply isn't possible to do it anyway. But you need to challenge yourself every 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 couple of years and go, okay, I really need to do something else because it keeps you fresh. Well, I was going to say, yeah, mm. those things can kind of feed, feed into Absolutely. your general kind of creativity. Yeah, and I think also, you know, I look at people that have been slogging at the same coalface for their entire career and I defy anybody to produce excellent work all the time doing the same thing. And photography's fashions change. Mm. So, you know, we have a particularly... What's in the specifically English magazines now stylistically is a very portrait-led, very still, very stulted portrait look, you know. Um, I don't shoot those kind of things. Mm. I don't want to. I mean, you know, there are certain political reasons I don't do that. You know, I'm a reportage photographer. Classic documentary reportage is, you know, is not so interesting to picture editors now. And I think that also has to do with age age of picture editors or what readers are told that they want to see. But we spoke earlier about the boy on the beach, the Syrian child that washed up. Yeah, we spoke before we mm. we started because we, we're talking, um, I think it's sort of only 48 hours since that story yeah. broke and it's caused a, a massive amount of, of reaction. Sure. Um, a little three-year-old yeah. uh, kid who was drowned um, along with his brother and mother. Um, it's kind of, yeah... Pr- I don't think an image has has created that a level of of impact for a long time. Sure, and we, I mean, you know, images like that, and I can think last year about the children that were massacred on the beach in Gaza um, by Israeli shelling. You know, it's another image, but that reminds you that I think photography is many things to many people, and I, you know, I'm I'm not fanatical enough to suggest for a second that. Um, that's the only kind of photography, but it's the kind of photography that instant that makes you go, well, stop, that's shit, we have to do something. Mm. Photography that can change, photography that makes you bleed inside a little bit. Mm. Uh, I think, but also what's interesting is that those, those the images that kind of fall into that category mm. are very often pictures that basically anyone could have taken. Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes they're not they're not um, pictures that require any particular kind of photographic. Well, talent. you know, photography is ultimately democratic, mm. and and I think you know, look at me. I didn't have any training in photography yet. I can kind of take a picture. I guess what's in the back of my mind is is that the you know this the idea that now that everyone has a camera phone, sure, you know that. We all know that that's changed things, and we don't yeah, but you necessarily know, know what the But not the everybody's a journalist, not everybody... And I think this came up a few years ago about the ethical aspects of photojournalism, and I wrote about this a bit. I didn't... And I... You know, it wasn't my intention in any sense to be called an ethical photographer, but I think as a profession, we have to be seen to be the ones that make images that count and are taken in a professional and ethical manner. You know, I think that's really important. Yes, a guy on a camera phone might take a great picture, but as a working professional, you need to go out every single day and take the best picture and do it in a way that is respectful and within ethical boundaries. Because we are 
we're the ones people trust. Our pictures have to be the ones that, that go out in the media and, you know, people have to respect our veracity of that image. People have to say it's true. Mm. I mean, leaving aside truth in photography, which is a whole different area. But, you know, if you send a photographer out and he's starting photoshopping missile strikes or whatever, you know, it doesn't hurt just him. It hurts everybody in this profession. You have to be the one to go out and, you know, tell truth to power. Mm. I really believe that. I mm. mean, it sounds pompous, but you know what? You have to be, it has to, a photographer has to be as analogous, it has to be an analogous to kind of direct quotes. You can't make this shit up. It's too important. And there's a big responsibility to for photographers to act in a certain way. And, and yeah. So there's, there's a, yeah, there's a lot more to that debate that than than the mere fact that that you know a guy with his iphone could take that particular picture Absolutely. it's also to do with you know the fact that a professional has done it also there's a certain amount of assumptions that come along with that that's right that's right yeah i mean it's interesting because you're talking about fashion and i was going to ask you about you know really whether what we were I guess we both kind of refer to as traditional photojournalism. Mm. You know, is it out of fashion at the moment? Because I, I, I sometimes get the impression that it is. Well, look, I work in a very traditional way. You know, my work is based on humanist documentary photography, that tradition about seeing the best in the world and trying to reflect it. And there are lots of different movements in photography and photojournalism that... I find quite difficult, you know, recently. Um, I don't think the world can be photographed as a portrait continuously and endlessly. Uh, you know, I've gone on record as saying I'm sick of seeing people photographed like they're butterflies under glass with no element of humanity just standing there with a slack jaw. It bores the, it bores the pants off me. And, and I don't think it does anything for the subject. I don't think it... it, it I'm really conscious about the fact that you need to, and however cliche this sounds, I don't care. You know, we're photographers because we want to show the world what's going on. I, I'm sure that's true. And the world doesn't look like an art photograph half the time, right? You know, and I think you kind of, we spoke earlier about being in the picture, becoming a brand and, you know, what I've done on social media. But my work is really not about that. It's about stepping back. It's about not having anything of me in that picture. So when I photograph someone, I just don't want people to think, oh, that's, I can tell the photographer's thumbprint on that picture. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I want it to look as natural and as lovely <laughs> as possible. You know, I really believe that you have to photograph. This is why I stopped shooting black and white. I kind of think I've seen enough horrible things in the world that I really wanted to start shooting colour and seeing more beautiful things. And I really think it's important for photographers to shoot a beautiful, the most beautiful picture they can, even of the most grim subject. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. You have to try and engage the reader or the viewer. And if you make boring pictures, even of the most interesting subject, you're going to turn people off. Mm. And I want people to look at work and go, wow, I want to do something about that. That sometimes... You know, a refugee boy drowning on a beach is just one of those things that goes, boom, let's do something. Mm. And, and it has, and I'm, I'm very happy about that. But engaged, human-centred work that shows life in all its rawness and beauty is always going to trump a lucky picture on an iPhone. Mm. I, I hope so, because if not, I'm going to pack it in. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, I guess, you know, some people have and, and, and will because you know, things have changed very dramatically in terms mm. of, you know, uh, the outlets for photography being very different. And, uh, you yeah. know, that's just something that we all have to kind that's of life. get our heads around. But that's what, life. Well, what, what, I guess, what, is your, what are your feelings? Do you, have any, um, do you have any firm ideas about how things are going to go? Well, evidence would suggest it's not going to get a lot easier. Mm. Um, no, I don't. I don't. I think, I think, I think the problem is that editorial photography 
it's purely predicated on rates that are going to go down and down and down because it's supply and demand. Everybody can take a picture. Everybody can have a, you know, everybody can be a photographer. But I'm confident in that people who really want to make a difference, really want to show the world in a in an interesting way will always make pictures whether they get paid for them or not. I mean, you know, if I'd have wanted to make money, the last thing I was going to do was be a photographer, yeah. right? It's not, it's not, impo- well, it's important, but it's not the be all and end all, you know? Um, we live in this ridiculous culture that says we are what we acquire. And, you know, I don't need, how many cars do you need? How many houses do you need? It's nonsense. I mean, clearly you need to make enough money to live and do the things you want to do. But above and beyond that, I just think it's pointless. So I think you have to be realistic. We're never going to be back in the 60s when there are superstar photographers. Um, And I wouldn't know what to do with myself as a superstar. (laughs) I'm just so not there. But, um, you know, we make money how we make money. I think it's important to live a, a fulfilled life. I don't know what else to say, really. Mm. But do you know what I mean? I don't yeah, think totally. you come into this, you ain't going to make a fortune. I mean, sure, if you're shooting advertising, why not? Fine. But if you're trying to do serious documentary work, um, no. I mean, we all, we all know that kind of, you know, that the newspapers and, and magazines, print newspapers and mm. magazines, um, uh, well, the, uh, the received wisdom is that, you know, they're perhaps in their death throes. Sure. Although they've been saying it for a while. Yeah. Um, but then it seems to me that there are a lot of kind of sp- kind of high end, well produced, small circulation magazines out there. So I don't quite know how that works because that seems to be something that's that's an area that seems well, to be well. Niches thriving. make money, right. but they don't make tons of money. Right. Um, so that's kind of what it is. They're kind of like I think they're niches. They're kind of little yeah. lifestyle yeah. businesses in a way. Yeah, absolutely. But I I firmly believe you know, and I've always believed this that if there was a kind of Reinvention of Picture Post, you know, that great magazine, the British magazine, um, post-war British magazine that featured great documentary work. I believe if you gave the public the opportunity to see brilliant work that was contemporary, that was current, that maybe have to have multimedia components, because that's where we're going, says he talking into a microphone, um, people want to see the world, Mm. you know? And I think that's really... Important people are interested. It's just that we're fed a diet of pap. Mm. I mean, literally pap and and celebrities. But that's only because the people that control the media make their money out of that. Yeah. Well, what we now have is is the opportunity for um, people to put their work on the internet and sure. and reach an extremely big audience. Mm. Um, there might not necessarily be any direct income from doing that. So you know, you got to kind of figure out how that works, but. Print is not the only option. Print is not the only option. I mean, what really worries me is that the the photographers that will survive are either the bloody-minded ones or the independently wealthy ones. And it will go back to, as art always has been, uh, a system of patronage. And that really bothers me because the tradition, the the humanist documentary tradition post-war, was about democratising not only the photographer but also the photographer's vision you know, if you were good enough, you could get published and you can make a bit of a living. And I'm concerned now that in, in the way that society is stratifying from both ends, we're ending up with a visual tradition like that. You know, only the rich can, can buy these new cameras or, you know, can afford to go off to Africa for three weeks and shoot a story about poverty, hence the irony. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And I think I think we have to be very careful about that because where the messenger comes from is often as important as the message that's told. Um, I hope that the, that the internet and, and those kind of platforms are going to democratize things in a much fairer way. I have my doubts in some senses, but you know, I'm an optimist. I think I'm going, I'm still going to do what I'm going to do. I'm still going to keep shooting the stories that I want to shoot. I'd like to do some more books. I really would because I think people respond well to the tactile quality of paper. And when you see an image on paper, in print, on the gallery wall, I think people respond to that in a way that they maybe don't when they see it on a screen. Absolutely. And I think that's probably 
you know, that's why in some ways it's uh, it's even more uh, valuable hmm. now. People are, as you say, you know, we're so used to looking at ephemera and stuff that's well, we're on just the simply screen. bombarded by images. Yeah. And so, but a book is a very kind of visceral thing, and well, it is, and it stops. It stops you. You have to you know, look at a single image at a time. You have to turn a page. It's not you're being bombarded by constant imagery. Mm. And I think, you know, even even in terms of magazines and stuff, it's the same kind of thing. Those images are there and you have to pause and look at them. It's not a click, 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 click. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think that's really important. Stuart, thank you so much for talking to me. It's really interesting. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for, thanks for coming around. Thank you.